My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Ty Esteban Sunanen. Ty is a whirling dervish of a human, just incredibly energetic, driven, persistent, intelligent, creative, caring, all the adjectives for Ty. He's, uh, he's the founder and CEO of Strategic Insights Group, a mission-driven consulting firm based out of L.A., He's a life coach, an executive coach. He's an active uh, lieutenant, a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. He is, at the moment of, of this recording, as I record this intro, involved with vaccine distrib- distribution across Southern California. And frankly, that is just the tip of the iceberg. You're going to have to go check out his bio uh, before or after you hear this conversation because there is so much he has done to support people all over the world that it would take me 15 minutes to list it all here. And that would probably still only be the tip of the iceberg. He has spent the past 25 plus years traveling, teaching, making a difference in the lives of everyone he meets. So that's sort of the, that's the external resume as Ty likes to call it. But he also has this wonderful idea of the internal resume. And the internal resume is the journey that each of us go on to become healed and whole. Ty's personal story coming from a background of of poverty in Los Angeles all the way up to becoming a doctoral student at Harvard, where we met in my master's degree program. He was a teaching assistant then. And when we met at that moment, I sensed that this was a person of deep integrity and deep intensity. But what I wasn't aware of yet that now makes a lot of sense is he was also, also deeply, deeply driven to initially to escape his past rather than to face it, to meet it, embrace it, and become who he was called to be. So this is a wonderfully deep, enriching, human-first conversation with Ty, and I'm really glad that we got to reconnect after all these years since we first crossed paths when I was in graduate school. So let's get settled in and hear what Ty has for us. Hi, Ty. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Andy, good to see you, man. <laughs> yeah, really good to see you. Really good to see you. Ty, when we uh, first met, you were um, studying for your PhD in graduate school, and you were serving as a teaching assistant in the leadership program that I was in. That's right. And uh, yeah, that was just an awesome year, man. I want to say, first of all, I don't know if I ever properly got the chance to say thank you for the role you played in making that year an awesome year for all of us who are in the program at that time. So thank yeah, you for that. I it. it was an awesome year for me. Awesome year of learning, of discovery, and uh, sort of overcoming what I thought was important in life at that time. So it was, it was good for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I encountered you then, and I still do in a way encounter you this. And I mean this, I really truly mean this in the fullest sense. I encountered you as this sort of force of nature. <laughs> like you just showed up with, with whatever was set before you, you showed up with uh, an intensity and commitment is the word and a, a commitment that I don't know I'd ever met anyone with that level of commitment before. And so I, I honor that. But I also, in recent, in recent times, as you and I have reconnected, you, 
you've sort of shown a side of yourself that that like speaks to maybe the other side of that coin of intensity and commitment. And it seems to me that you've been on this journey of kind of integrating the part of you that is just like makes amazing shit happen. (laughs) (laughs) But also the part of you that recognizes that at the end of the day, life is not about the shit happening. It's about the kind of deep, deeper values and connections and interrelations that kind of emerge from whatever's happening. And I'm curious, does that land with you? Is that right? Am I sort of, what's coming up for you as I share this, this uh, experience that I have when I'm with you? Wouldn't it be awful if, it said it, if I said it doesn't resonate? No, it absolutely does. <laughs> I'd love that. I'd love to see what yeah. happened about it. But yeah. Yeah, what are you talking about? Dude, no. What? <laughs> that, it was one of the most critical junctures in my life where I was on this fast train of really making a name for myself so that what I call my external resume would look stealth. Right. So I would be getting all the accolades and praise and all that came with it. Mm. Uh, Mm. But at the same time, the other half of that juncture was realizing that internally I wasn't happy. Mm. And Mm. so it was a game changer at that time of my doctoral work to say, I think it's time that I work on my internal resume, right? Mm. You know, Mm. uh, at that point, it wasn't what I thought was important based on societal standards and what society dictated, because all of that was in my head. Mm. What really mattered uh, is what was happening inside, Mm. right? What was going on spiritually, mentally, physically. And I think we're all now experiencing that uh, given the pandemic. So uh, that was a a sweet spot of learning and growth for me. And and hopefully you folks benefited uh, from that or, you know, running the opposite way because I I was all over the place. (laughs) Hmm. You use the word game changer. And I really appreciate that because I've had an experience in my own life, in my own journey of kind of waking up to the fact that much of what we call adulthood is a sort of game with rules that were established centuries ago by people who are no longer alive that we've just inherited. And it's just sort of this waking up to like, why, wait, why am I playing this game? Even if I'm kind of good at it, like, and it seemed to me that there was a way in which you have this part of you that was really fucking good at the game, but, but how did you start to notice that you needed to change the game and start to play it? Like what you said, you felt on, you noticed you were unhappy. Was that, what was that? What was the, what was the catalyst for you to really start to pay attention to that feeling or did it kind of accumulate over time? How, how did that hit you? Yeah, it was a couple of things. One was, I remember I was starting to teach a course at Harvard Kennedy School. I was a visiting lecturer at UC Berkeley. I taught at Vanderbilt. I was writing, researching, lecturing, and all that was like a hamster in its wheel. Mm. Non-stop. And every time I published an article, my uh, faculty colleagues would be like, Ty, when's the next one coming out? Right? Like, so there was no rest or break. And at the same time, I was starting to ask the question, why is it that we do the things that we do just on a regular day-to-day basis, Mm. right? So, Mm. for example, there's a tacit behavior that all students engage in uh, that I was curious why we do that. And that is, why do we raise our hands when we have a question, right? Why is that? Uh, why is it that in today's age, we wave goodbye over Zoom when we actually don't wave when we leave a meeting in person? Right? <laughs> behaviors that are tacit and you're like, well, why do we do that? Right. Mm. So the question I was asking myself was, Ty, why do you feel like you have to please this institution called Harvard? Right. Mm. where Harvard is going to do well with or without you. It's going to Mm. go on 
existing with or without you. And so at that point, it was like, why am I doing 101 things to please Harvard and not myself? And I had caved into this notion of uh, the hallowed halls of academia. And I think part of it was uh, at 14, my dad and I were homeless living in Los Angeles. And I remember we were squatting in an abandoned building. And I thought to myself at that time, this sucks. Right. You know, I don't want to be in this position ever again. And so when you have sort of uh, trying traumatic experiences, there's a light switch that can go off. Right. Mm. And mine was work as hard as you can, just like my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, and then to get educated. Right. Mm. Those two were my tickets out of poverty. Right? Mm. And so that was like that little engine that could reverting back to what you said at the beginning, uh, which is I was this force of nature. It's actually a falsehood of Mm -hmm. all that insecurity that I carried since I was 14 and then trying to make a name for myself, right? The external resume mattered so much. I think it matters for a lot of people, especially those coming out of college, right? Because it's that ripe time of your 20s that you want the world to know who you are and what you're capable of doing. And that ideology is fantastic. But then at some point, you might experience burnout. You might experience hitting a wall. I certainly did. Mm. And my wall was the doctoral program at Harvard, which was fantastic. But then coming to the realization of, I'm happy. What am I doing? So part of me wants to... um kind of explore what it what the burnout was like more because I sense that a lot of people hear the phrase burnout and don't really like they get it but they don't actually believe it's happening until it's happened and then it's sort of like we have to pick up the pieces so I feel like there's some wisdom there that we could explore but but another part of me is just kind of called to get to know 14 year old Ty a little bit more like to get to know you Cause that never again moment that you described was both a source of tremendous energy and a real protective mechanism against a terrible situation to have to find to, for anyone to find themselves in, to be homeless. And I wonder, I wonder which of those you feel kind of energized about like the moment of, of really hitting burnout and how you moved through it or, or that or maybe that moment of never again and what that was like as a 14 year old. Both. (laughs) Both are tremendously beautiful and brilliant experiences. 14 year old Ty Mm -hmm. came to the conclusion that sleeping in an abandoned building was not the life that I wanted not only for myself, for, uh, but also for my family. Because what came with that was insecurity, uncertainty. What came with that was embarrassment, mm. humiliation. Mm. I remember going to school and when the parents of my classmates would want to drop me off at home, I would have them drop me off a block or two away. Mm. And, and walk the rest of the way. And I remember like after weeks of that happening, I'll never forget it. One of the parents said, oh, um, uh, my son needs to use the restroom. Right? Can, you go to, can you go inside? And I said, oh, unfortunately I can't because uh, uh, my parents won't allow guests at this time. My mom's sick. And I kept coming up with excuses. So I became really good at doing that as a cover. Mm. And... I remember distinctly the day where I had enough, right? That was my version of burnout at 14. Mm. And I asked myself, what can I do to get out of this, right? Like I, I was in school full time, obviously, but there was, there was more that I could do. Uh, so I started reading and learning uh, business basics, right? How to start your own business. And that gave me a way out mentally 
to not focus and be stressed about being homeless. And I think the adult pie experiencing burnout face the same struggles, right? I think burnout is a multifaceted, multidimensional word. And mm. everyone experiences it differently. But you know you're experiencing burnout when you feel like you're hitting a wall. Mm. When you feel like you have no other option, when you feel that the world is collapsing, right? Mm. You know you're experiencing burnout of whatever kind when your mind isn't in sync with where it is you want to be in life. Mm. When your heart is struggling to be at a place that you know you want to be in the promised land and it can't for whatever mm. reason. So burnout by definition is the uncertainty and unknown that causes you to experience stress, that causes you to experience anxiety, mm. that causes you to feel like the world is caving around you and you've had enough. If for some folks, it means you can't get, can't get out of bed in the morning. It might mean that you don't know what the next day is going to look like. It means that you might not be taking any phone calls from your colleagues at work, from your boss, from your friends, and from your family. It might mean you just... So, Ty, you cut out for a second there, but you're, but what I was touched by was the real honoring you're giving to the personal experience of burnout, which I hear as an experience of misalignment, like whether that's a misalignment between your expectations for life and your reality or a misalignment between what you know in your heart to be true and what, and what your mind says you should do like the kind of should versus versus truth. And I think that emotional layer to burnout is really important because there's something, yeah, there's something like the, the tragedy of a young man, not only not having a place to live, but actually worse, fearing the embarrassment of having to admit that to someone else. And the fact that we live in a, in a culture where you, even at age 14, knew that you should have a home and that you should look a certain way to the to these parents and your friends and that you should be a, a PhD from Harvard, right? Like the sort of the heaviness of should, which creates that emotional misalignment, because if your heart's saying, no, like I should be somewhere else or I want to be somewhere else, why am like that? That is what, what I'm connecting with as you kind of share 14 year old tie and adult tie that there's this experience of misalignment between what is and what you know in your heart could be. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And the beautiful part of that is everyone experiences that at some point in their life. We all do. It's just how we internalize it and how we deal with it, how we overcome it. And that using that as a learning lesson and a learning tool hmm. for the next go around, because you know, it's going to happen. I mean, that's what adulthood is about, right? Yeah. It's taking all these lessons that were shitty, crappy, beautiful, brilliant, and then saying, well, now I'm better because of it. Now I'm smarter, stronger, more fit. I can handle this. I've got this. I can do this. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful paradox in that our desire to avoid discomfort, embarrassment, challenge. Every time we successfully avoid it, we we actually shrink our we either freeze or shrink our capacity to meet the next challenge. But what okay. I'm hearing you say is that the 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 gift hidden inside the burnout wasn't an, was an invitation towards like deeper connection with your own natural strength and resource and resilience, so that whenever the next thing came, there was there was more access to what you really who you really were and what you really had, as opposed to just like the mask that you were trying to keep on. Is that right? That's right. 
being uncomfortable is where growth takes place. Yeah. If you can sit in that milieu of <laughs> ambiguity and uncertainty, kind of like what we're doing now amidst this pandemic, that is where growth takes place. But you have to be willing to accept that. And I think that's what was happening uh, during my time at Harvard was I was I was hitting a wall. I was feeling overwhelmed, but somehow I knew this was part of my learning. Mm. And I had great mentors uh, who said the same thing, right? Like, Ty, this, this is where your learning is going to elevate, catapult to the next level. And so I trusted them because they had experienced the same thing, <laughs> right? And then realizing, wow, we're all kind of all in this collective boat, right? Uh, in our respective journeys in this life. And, and that's what makes it fun and interesting when you realize you're exactly where you need to be. <laughs> Beautiful. So Ty, where, where are you right now? And, and how is that exactly where you need to be in terms of like, what's the place of, of edge or discomfort that you're living through right now in this moment? Seeing the world from a different perspective than what I'm used to or comfortable with. And what comes to mind is my go-to for changing perspectives in my life, people around me, uh, the world, uh, the pandemic, friendships, the economy. And that is one of my favorite artists of all time is uh, Katsushika Hokusai, Mm. who lived in Edo, Japan, which is now Tokyo. And in 1834, at the age of 73, Hokusai enters a brand new journey in his life. And he embarked on this new artistic endeavor, which the world now knows as the 100 views of Mount Fuji. So most people are familiar with the great wave uh, that Hokusai painted uh, in the uh, mid-1800s. Yeah. But what a lot of people don't know is the 100 views of Mount Fuji, or in this case, the great wave, has nothing to do with the great wave. The whole idea of this artistic endeavor was that Hokusai was asking the question, how can we see Mount Fuji from a different perspective, Mm. right? At that time, Mount Fuji, and still today, it had been a focal point in the community. You can't miss it, right? It's that thing that's in front of you every single day. How can you see that thing from a different angle, from a different perspective? Mm. So if you actually look at the great wave, and I encourage all the listeners to do that, you'll realize Mount Fuji is actually in the far distance. Yeah, it's like in the back right corner or something like that, that's right? It. That's exactly it. So <laughs> that's, that's awesome. what I'm going to right now in terms of my own level of understanding of how the world is working right now is to think of the hundred views of Mount Fuji. Mm. And the thing that's in front of me right now is the state of the economy. Right. Mm. Uh, For not only all Americans, uh, but for everyone on this planet. Right. And what do we do with that? And what do we do with all the issues that we care about, be it the environment or education or what have you, is to look at it from a different perspective. So that's that's exactly where I'm sitting at right now. Mm. What I'm hearing you say is that there is a sort of meta practice of looking at anything, sort of whatever your Mount Fuji is, for you, it's kind of the global economy and the implications that it has on people. But whatever it is, there's a practice in not just sitting with the most obvious vantage, but rather maybe finding 10 vantages or 50, or if you're Hokusai, if you're, if you're willing to go all the way, like, what is it, what is it to take the thing that we assume to be true and central and see it from as many angles as possible? Is that right? Absolutely. And it's the same with human behavior. It's the same with our family members and loved ones, right? There may be a habit, a behavior, 
of someone that you care about. And you're like, why, why do they do that? Right. <laughs> I know that one. Yeah. yeah. I know that one. Why does my partner do that? That annoys the shit out of me. Right. But if you look at it from a different perspective, a different angle, and you meet them where they're at, there's more of an appreciation for it. Mm. Right. As opposed to an annoyance. Mm. So as a master life coach, I've been telling people this entire year, 2020, show some more appreciation, right? As opposed to annoyances on the part of behaviors of people in your life, Mm. right? And imagine what it's like to validate someone more than it is to share an annoyance with someone. (laughs) Imagine what it's like to give some love and gratitude to someone versus a complaint, it changes everything, right? It changes your mood. It increases the level of dopamine in your brain and that neurotransmitter that then says, oh my gosh, I'm choosing to be positive today, Mm. right? It's like what I tell people right now, you have a choice how you wake up in the morning. I didn't realize that until I, again, was looking at the meta level of the world implications from COVID-19, right? And like everyone else, I was feeling a certain way. I was, I was going through some emotional, physiological change as a result of not being able to engage in the world the way I'm accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And then I said to myself, you know what? I'm tired of this weirdness because it's not serving me well. I am going to wake up happy, right? <laughs> and that small change of perspective followed by behavioral change led to a mindset change, which then, you know, decreased any stress or anxiety I might've had. Right. So even subtle shifts make a huge difference. Yeah. Someone recently shared with me, which I I think is another example of what you're describing, the power of language. They overheard me say that I had to do something. I said, I have to go do this. And, and they said, Andy, what if you said instead you get to go do this? Like instead of, oh, I have to do, oh, I got another podcast interview. Today. I have to get there on time for Ty. What if instead I say, I get, I get to interview Ty today. And I've been, I've been, I've been using that. And tell me you were more uh, excited about talking with me today. <laughs> well, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't feeling the have, but just as an example, like, there is a way in which I've created a uh, an, uh, an expectation for myself. Okay, I'm a podcast host now. And I schedule these conversations. I'm, you're maybe my 46th or 47th conversation. And I already have another 20 lined up in the next few months. And there's a way in which I could relate to that subtly and unconsciously from a place of have, of ob- of sort of like, Oh man, I have to, and I still have to go, I have to go like, make sure my, my daughter gets down to bed tonight and I have to, you know, help clean up when dinner's done. And I have to, have to, have to, have to, but just that, like, Oh, like I get, I get to have the coolest conversations with the coolest fucking people. And I get to go as soon as this call is over, I get to, I get to close my computer and go pick up my daughter. Like I get to. I get to wake up. I don't know. There's just that, just, just that subtle tune up to notice that even I, who's like, Hey, I'm, I'm Mr. Optimistic was like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm creating an, an illusion of, of burden when in fact the reality is one of gift. And that's kind of what I'm hearing and what you're saying. Yeah. We are changing patterns that are no longer serving us. Yeah. And if you choose to explore that from a different perspective, right? If you take a look at your tacit behaviors, right? The routines you do throughout the day and like a third person observing that, you will find some aha gold nuggets, some light bulbs go off and be like, huh, that's not serving me anymore, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like the mindset, the attitude, and and by the way, it's completely normal to experience that. Yes, and it's completely normal to experience that throughout our lives, right? Just because you have that aha moment, right, it doesn't mean that 
you're now set for life. It's almost like your personal values. Values change over time. The thing you care about today may not have been in your top three a year mm. ago. Right? Mm. Certainly it changes with life experiences, right? Marriage, children, loss of a family member, uh, the pandemic, right? So certainly there are life forces and life events that change your value system, but there's also ones that you are deliberate in changing because you want to have and lead an optimal life. Mm. And I think that's the business that you're in, Andy, with being able to invite these fantastic people onto your podcast and for your listeners to sit in stillness and say, ha, huh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I learned something and I'm going to now change my life, my old patterns of behavior, the things that aren't serving me anymore. So the podcast is a modality giving people an opportunity to explore something within mm. and then gain something out of it so that they're better humans because of it. Mm. I love it. And I might even like even alter the word better to something like more, right? They're just, they have, they have access to more of their innate humanity. There that you from, go. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, and that, so it strikes me like for me, you've alluded to, to the economy a few times and the pandemic a few times. And, and I really appreciate that we've sort of taken this space to, to hear how you're, you've shifted like uh, this weirdness isn't serving me. I'm going to make a conscious choice to wake up happy. But, but I, I'm curious, like there's, um, there's a, maybe I feel like a part of me that wants to speak for, for folks who hear you say that and go, well, that sounds really easy, but that's not my experience. It's really hard for me to choose, or, you know, that's just, that must just be how Ty is wired or, or there's something there that is kind of context related, right? And and maybe another way I could say this is that there are lots of young young people who are homeless right now who for whatever reason they experience the like never again moment that you experience and the, and the fire doesn't get lit the way it got lit for you, right? And and so I'm wondering how you hold that paradox. And maybe this has something to do with, with how you're looking at the Mount Fuji of our economy or the Mount Fuji of this pandemic right now. Like, is there a both end here or is there something that you want to go deeper into around the like, what works for you, what choice you make might not be the choice I need to make or something like that. So yeah, play with that. I'll, I'll, I'll t t pass it over to you and see what you do with that. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's not a paradox. If you look at the counterfactual, that is to say, if you continue to wake up in this case and choose to welcome the day the same way you have, and that's not serving you, hmm. then there's a opportunity, hmm. right? For the listeners who are experiencing real world traumatic issues, mm. right? And I'm not immune to it, by the way. And I'm happy to talk about that in a moment because I launched a company amidst this pandemic and it is flatlining, mm. right? So mm. I'm in the same boat. But that's the context by which I'm now deciding to wake up and experience the day differently. Because mm. waking up with stress, anxiety, and knowing that my cortisol levels are increasing, right, which is the stress hormone that's going into my bloodstream, and that's causing a ripple effect, right? Because the more cortisol that's in your bloodstream, it shrinks the part of the brain called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is important for long-term memory and the intake of new information. Mm. And that leads to a decrease in the neurotransmitter called serotonin. Serotonin, a decrease of it, leads to depression and burnout, mm. right? So I knew that I was experiencing this ripple effect that wasn't serving me. So I was trying to figure out, well, what can I do differently, right? Like 
there's so much that's outside of my control and I, I had enough of it. Right. So one thing is just going back to basics and going back to basics for me and everyone else's guess what folks focus on what's in your control. Yeah. Right. Don't focus on what you don't have control over. And in the morning I realized I really like grinding my coffee beans or I really like uh, going for a walk around the neighborhood, right? Those little things is what I needed to change my mindset and attitude. Now, again, you could be experiencing real world hardship and I want to honor that, but I would urge you really urge you to ask the question is how I wake up in the morning again, using that example, serving me well throughout the day, Hmm. right? Because I was getting tired of operating like a zombie. I was, man. It was, it was hitting all of us at once and people were coming to Ty and being like, okay, coach me through this Ty. What can you do to get out of it? Wait a minute. Like I I need my moment to process this, right? Like I, where's my coach, right? Where's my tribe that's going to, rally around together and say, okay, guys, what, what, what do we do? Right. How can we have a breakthrough with this global crisis? Yeah. Mm. So making choices sounds easy. Executing is a different thing and a beast altogether, but it doesn't have to be difficult. And I think that's the piece where I really want people to sit still with, right? And if folks are fighting me on this idea that that's not where I'm at, Ty, I can't do that. You don't understand what I'm going through. Ah, that's a pattern of thought. Mm. Mm. And if that pattern of thought is not serving you, Mm. then I invite you to explore other options. That's all I'm saying, right? Be Hokusai. Yes. And be your Mount Fuji from a different angle and perspective. Ah, it's beautiful. Yeah, and what I'm struck by, by the way, is, is how, how maybe not easy, but simple, like the simplicity of, I choose to enjoy grinding my coffee beans. Because I, you know what? I do it every day, and most of the times I don't even pay attention because I've been doing it for 10 years now. But God damn it, I started it because I like grinding my coffee beans. I like how it smells. I like how it feels. I'm not going to let that moment pass me by. Even if when I'm done grinding my coffee beans, there's something else that's outside of my control that I can't choose to like, right? But then there's yeah. like there's like that micro step towards a choice opens up. What if we could, what if we could, like, what if you could choose to be like, I choose my flatlining business. I yeah. choose it. You know, like what, like, I wonder, I wonder how far down the rabbit hole we could do actually go with choosing ownership over how we experience reality. And, uh, and maybe it starts with your coffee beans, but maybe it goes, goes infinitely deep. I don't know. What, how do you encounter that? It's a choice to wake up in the morning and say, you know what? Today, I get to have a fantastic conversation with Ty Sinanin as my 46th guest. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Going down a rabbit hole, it sounds like a worthwhile question or observation. I think what I've learned over the years was sometimes just doing and being helps elevate my mood and outlook. Versus the thinking that I've been trained to do my whole life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. My soft way of saying, Andy, that sometimes the analysis and the thinking in and of itself becomes the problem. Mm. Mm. And when I was in my third year of the doctoral program, I remember I had in my office <laughs> at the Graduate School of Education, I had, I had posters all over my office 
of, of, of the decision tree of the options that I had before me and what decisions I was going to make and, and all that frustration. <laughs> I, I called my dad and I usually at that time had not called people for advice, right? Like I'm Ty Sunan and I can figure this out, right? I was trained to do this. Um, and my dad said, you know what, son, you overthink too much. Mm. And he mm. said, that's actually been a pattern you've had for a really long time. What if instead of thinking about a decision tree, right? And the analysis <laughs> of your decision tree, what if you just be, what if you just do? And I kind of scoffed it off because it was so antithetical to the way I've been trained. And then I realized, my gosh, it means going back to basics, right? At 14, I wasn't overanalyzing how I was going to get out of poverty. I was going to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I applied to work at Costco as a bagger and lied about my age because you had to be uh, 16 at that time. And with the first few paychecks, was able to start my own painting company, right? There was no freaking decision tree, <laughs> right? At that time, there was no poster paper lining the building that my dad and I were in. We and I just did it, right? Mm. And my dad helped. Mm. So why is it that in all my sophistication learning that I had to make it complicated with a decision tree? Yeah. Right? And that's almost like what we're experiencing now. If we take a step back, what patterns of behaviors are no longer serving us, right? Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. because the way of being and doing got you to this place of success or that you might have had in life doesn't mean that that's going to carry you to the next level. Mm -hmm. Because every time you evolve, every time you level up, it means newness, right? You got to invite newness, mm -hmm. right? And that's how you get stuck. That's how you hit your wall. Because you're like, wait a minute, everything I know doesn't serve me right now, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what happened at the beginning of the pandemic because I was comfortable in, in my life, but this pandemic hit and I'm like, whoa, everything is thrown out the window. Well, not everything, right? But that was an opportunity to learn and grow. I just had to sit with it. Yeah. I had to sit in stillness. I had to practice my breathing technique. Mm. I had to practice how I was going to live in this world. Right. And, and that was the awesomeness of just being and doing. Yeah. So cool. When you think about the Mount Fuji of kind of our global economy or of our society, I hear you implying, and maybe this is, is this is what, where you've been pointing us towards, but I sort of hear you implying that collectively we have an opportunity to do the same thing, to ask ourselves what patterns that got us to this moment, however successful they might have been, are actually costing us way more than we know. And this might be an opportunity to, to rethink how we, how we do and be a collective. Is that, is that something you've been dancing with or playing with? 100%. Yeah. I get to practice this now in this new career field I'm in as an officer in the Air Force. And before, I never had thought about working with veterans. And that's probably because my parents kept the biggest secret in the world for me, which is I'm a third-generation uh, military. Mm. Uh, my great grandfather's on both sides and my grandfather's on both sides, right? My mom from Ecuador and my dad from Thailand. Pretty spectacular, pretty gnarly, right? Wow. I didn't realize any of this until I was 37 years old. So I'm working with vets right now. And what I'm learning and what I've experienced 
really early on is that whatever branch of military you were in, there were patterns of behavior that you were supposed to engage in, right? That now when you're a civilian or mm. retired, no longer serving you, mm. right? This idea of figuring it out on your own and coming up with solutions on your own and dealing with the problem on your own mm. is no longer serving you. And so what happens is you take that behavior that has been your rock and foundation for so long, for however long you served in the military, and no wonder you have PTSD, right, <laughs> as a vet. No wonder that your walk in this life is burdened by your inability to see the world differently or see your patterns of behavior differently because your mindset had been fixed, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't have the option of asking for help mm -hmm. or feeling that curiosity or vulnerability in that process. Yeah. So that has been a huge, huge uh, opportunity for me to say, how can I help folks see their Mount Fuji from a hundred different views? Mm. Mm. Yeah. And when I think about, I love that you're working with veterans because there's a sort of, in my very, very limited experience, my impression is that in the same way that vet, that, uh, that any person in the branch of military is trained and really like, I mean, the military does some pretty incredibly remarkable, like they have some ways of creating an identity for someone as a soldier or as a leader or as a, as a, a team member or whatever the kind of right language is that's really powerful and serves that person really well inside of their role in the military, as you said, but when they step back and become a civilian, suddenly it's like, they can't, they can't kind of just soldier on through life. They have to figure out a new way to live. I feel like there's sort of an analogy culturally in that we ask people to step into these roles and we know really well how to help them step into these roles. You know, you get your college tuition paid for and you get your, your income and your pension and your, you know, all this sort of stuff, whatever it is that like makes the, the role work and with the training and the camaraderie, everything. And, and culturally all of that disappears too. Like we don't know as a, how as a culture to, or as a society to effectively reintegrate people who've had to play a particular role in their life and now have an opportunity to play a new role. And I see this, like you could see this with our, with our prison system and you can see this in, in halfway houses that are trying to rehabil rehabilitate people who've gone through addiction. It's like, we're really bad at that. We're not, I don't know if that's the right language, but we really struggle with how to help people reintegrate in a way that is healthy and healing as opposed to actually making it even harder. In, it's actually in some ways injurious, I think, that we like say, okay, thank you for your service. Good luck. <laughs> you know, like, so I wonder if you noticed that too. Am I, am I onto something there? Wow, Andy, so good. So good, man. So, so good. Let's have a breakthrough moment right now. Let's get meta. In the military, there's order. Mm -hmm. There's a narrow focus on order. You wear the uniform, you dress a certain way. There's customs and courtesies, how you engage with the higher ups and higher ranking officials. Mm. There is order to everything. <laughs> when you leave the military, that order isn't there. When you go to Harvard for graduate school, and at the age of 26, you get offered an instructor position at Harvard Kennedy School to teach social entrepreneurship, there was order to it, right? I started wearing a bow tie. <laughs> what? Why? Because I wanted to fit in mm -hmm. to the Harvard essence, mm -hmm. the culture. Mm -hmm. It's like churchgoers. Faith. There's order to our respective faith, mm -hmm. right? There is order within the prison system. 
there is order by which we're supposed to operate in this world. Why? Because order means for us in the purest, most simplistic fashion that it makes living in this world more manageable, more digestible, right? What if those orders are false systems, yeah. okay, that disable our ability yeah. to innovate, create, to operate? I mean, come on, right? Now, they serve a purpose. Don't get me wrong. I'm still in the military because I respect and honor those traditions, and I made a commitment to protect America, right? So I value that greatly. But I also came into the military as a 40-year-old, right? <laughs> Completely different, right? And I had to petition Congress three years ago to lift the age cap at that time was 35 years old. Wow. I'm thinking, wait a minute, if you're ready and willing to serve your nation, why the hell not? Come on, right? It's breaking systems in order to have a breakthrough. And if you just take a moment to build on what you just profoundly said, Andy, yeah, a lot of the ways in which we operate in our respective career field means that we are operating in a way that might be disabling mm. to who we truly are. Mm. And that mm. is what every person who chooses to be open to it is experiencing during COVID-19, right? Months and months of separation from work, from loved ones, from nature, from the things that you're comfortable with, right? Now it's like, well, wait, wait a minute. What really matters right now? What really matters? Mm -hmm. That's what we should be asking. And that is why we're seeing, for example, people interested in now combating the systems that have been disabling us for so long. Yeah. that have been institutionalizing racism and poverty and environmental degradation, right? Now we're asking ourselves, wait a minute, does the electoral college service, wait a minute, why don't we have universal health care? Wait a minute, why aren't we taking care of nature? Right? Mm. Mm. Those are a profound way of re-looking at the world around us. And in asking those questions, we're finally able as a species to say, holy shit, our patterns of behavior have not been serving us. Yeah. But you know what? We've been comfortable with it because guess what? We've all been soldiers. We don't ask the question because we're worried about the repercussion. We don't ask the question because maybe no one else is. We're not asking the question because we're worried about the attacks. Mm. Right. But now none of that matters. Right now, all of that is thrown out because of the ability for information to be processed so much more quicker today than ever before. Hmm. Right. So hmm. now with social media, the blogosphere, I mean, we're inundated with the ability for people to articulate their points of view and perspective. And the accumulation of that means there's an opportunity for us to break these systems. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. I like, I really appreciate how you underlined the way that systems of order and control, which may certainly serve a purpose in managing complexity and, and mitigating against um, uncertainty literally like you're not being metaphorical there's literally a disabling impact that they have on our ability to be okay to to hold steady when something doesn't work the way it's been working for 10 years or when something suddenly goes quote unquote wrong and 
in some ways, those of us who are more insulated, who have the privilege of believing more consistently the illusion that everything is ordered and that if we just stand in the right spot in line and wait our turn, things will work out. Actually, we in a way have been even more disabled because we've been implicitly and unconsciously depending on these systems of order that are actually incredibly complex interlocking human inventions that (laughs) because we're humans don't always work the way we say they're going to. Bingo. (laughs) So like what I'm hearing is possible is like, there's actually an, an, an ableizing, I don't know if that's a word, but like a way to re-able ourselves or enable ourselves, I guess is the word by consciously choosing a certain amount of uncertainty or disorder in our lives by consciously stepping back from all of the things we think we need to really question. Do I need wireless internet? Well, if I'm going to host a podcast, maybe I do. I don't know. Let me check that out. Do Mm -hmm. I need uh, grocery delivery? Do I need cable? Do I need, but you could just pick anything and really check and see what is it doing for you or what is it disabling you around? So I'm just psyched about that, man. I think that's a really, it, it, it invites the possibility that each of us, regardless of how crippling these orderly systems can can be, there is an opportunity on some level to choose to step back, disengage, and decide if we want to create a better system than the one that exists right now. So, so good. Me listening to you have this breakthrough is a joy. <laughs> Because imagine the ripple effect across this country if people had the time, the bandwidth, the choice to also have their own breakthroughs, right? I cannot wait for COVID-19 to be behind us. But if there's one small thing that I appreciate about this global pandemic, it's that we get to be still and ask questions we haven't had the time, the bandwidth, or maybe curiosity to ask. Yeah. Why is it here in the United States that the president isn't chosen by popular vote? <laughs> I'm just curious. Right? So this whole notion of systems that disable us is all a power play. It's just a power grab by the haves versus the have-nots. And for far too long, the have-nots went along with it because it just felt out of our control. It was too far-fetched to believe in, to internalize, right? It wasn't something that was tangible. And if it's not tangible, we we can't handle it. So revert back to our notions of faith, right? School, military, whatever it is, right? Hmm. Uh, Because it it gives us a sense of false sense of being comfortable, right? And now we get to break that. And hopefully, and collectively, be able to start picking and chipping away at those systems. I think that is the awesomeness of what is before us. And hopefully, you know, the, the years to come, we'll see this resurgence of saying, wait a minute, folks, let's just take a look at how we're operating as a country and the systems that just suck, right? Yeah. That aren't empowering us, aren't enabling us, Right. Because the disparities and the has versus have nots is so uh, so much more greater than ever before. Right. (laughs) This is why the top five tech companies in the United States controls 80 percent of corporate wealth in the United States. Wow. (laughs) And I think we're seeing right now a resurgence for supporting small businesses. Right. It's the mom and pop shops, small businesses, which make up to 75 percent of the local economy, which has gone down under because of COVID. 
but yet you have these huge conglomerates, right, that still get to operate, many of whom don't pay taxes, right? We've got to reevaluate how does Amazon get away with not paying taxes? (laughs) How does Jeff Bezos get away with not paying taxes? And guess what? In the next five years, he gets to be the world's first trillionaire with a capital T. Yeah. There are inherent issues to the system that we now have to uncover, expose, and say to ourselves, is this the world we want to live in? Mm. Hey, fucking men, man. <laughs> Thank you. We, uh, we're coming down to our last minute or two here. And I just want to share how touched I am by the possibility that each of us has real agency in this big question of who we want to be as a collective, as a species, as a society. And, uh, and even if that means, in fact, especially because it means simply starting with how you choose to wake up in the morning or what you choose to do with your coffee beans, right? That, that, that is a choice that has ripple effects that in fact, all of our choices have ripple effects. So thank you for inviting everyone, including me into that really enabling and empowering way to think about who we are in this collective that we're all part of. Absolutely, my friend. And I'm going to leave you and your listeners with this. We're all in different places in life. We're all experiencing something profound, something different, something uncomfortable, maybe even something really, really shitty. But I want to offer everyone this statement and then we're all going to say it together, which is you're exactly where you need to be because this is part of your journey. So, uh, Andy, I'm going to invite you to repeat this with me. And for those listening, uh, the phrase is I'm exactly where I need to be. So Andy, will you join me in vocalizing this statement? Yeah. On the count of three, one, two, three. I'm, I'm exactly where, where I, I need, need to be. be. Yeah. yeah. So true. Thank you, Ty. Thank you, Andy. I feel that very much right now in this moment. I'm exactly where I need to be. So if people want to learn more about what you're up to in the world, where, the sh- where should they come and find you? If people want to learn more, I want them to just take some time to explore their own lives. They don't need to come search for me. (laughs) They need to take the time um, to choose curiosity, authenticity, vulnerability. That's what I want people to do. Mm. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you, Ty. Thanks, everyone who listened in. This has been a real treat. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.